My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. What if earnings just didn't matter anymore? After an ugly day, Dow tumbled 411 points. S&P shed 1.62%. NASDAQ lost 1.65%. The reality is, it depends. There are thousands of stocks where earnings still matter and matter a lot. But then there are a handful of high-profile growth names where they just don't seem to mean a thing. I have a list of the most impervious ones. Tonight, I'm going to reveal them. I'm calling them the Magnificent Seven. These are seven companies where buyers don't seem to care how well the underlying companies are doing. They just want to own the stocks regardless. The Magnificent Seven have detached themselves from all metrics except the metric of wonder. In each case, the thesis is so powerful that it overwhelms any mundane attempt to figure out what the business might be worth. What matters is that every day seems like a buying opportunity, whether the stock is up or down. The first member of the Magnificent Seven? Hmm, Netflix. I saw a pathetic story today about how New York is reopening movie theaters as long as they're not in New York City. 50 people per show, max. I yawned. I mean, who cares? Who wants that risk? Why not just stay at home and watch Netflix? The amazing thing about this one is the universality of its appeal. It's the Steve McQueen of the group. No one's going to the movies anywhere around the world, which means the Netflix bull thesis must be true, regardless of what the company says when it reports. So when it reports and reports tomorrow, I want you to wait until it reports. If the stock goes down after it reports tomorrow, history says buy it anyway, regardless of the results. Makes sense, although you could have said the same thing before the pandemic, too. Great growth stocks are always worth buying into weakness until something goes wrong and the story falls apart. And right now, the buyers and the investors don't think that's even within reason. Second member of the Magnificent Seven is Peloton. Forget that these expensive contraptions are basically just exercise bikes with a built-in screen. Peloton's become a cult name, the one stock you can buy instead of going to the gym or taking a spin class. Like Netflix, Peloton gives you an at-home alternative for things that are simply too risky thanks to COVID-19. I can't tell you how many people have bragged to me that they knew to get a Peloton the moment the pandemic broke, as if they were some sort of visionaries, just amazing prophets of exercise class doom. It's true that Peloton software makes it more of an ecosystem. The back orders are immense. The new products are enticing. What matters, though, is that Peloton's become the de facto way to play the athletic pandemic angle. Third, PayPal. Millennials started buying things on PayPal at the the point in their lives when my generation could only dream of maybe getting a Macy's credit card, where many of us got our first line of credit. Many never even switched to a card. They like PayPal, and they love Venmo, so they can shuttle money back and forth with emojis among friends. PayPal's all about the democratization of money. CEO Dan Shulman wants it to be a worldwide bank without the hassle. It's a remarkable ecosystem that's changed the world of finance. In an odd confluence, by the way, the younger investors are joined by older institutional players who buy the stock of PayPal because they want financial exposure without the credit risk that comes with owning a bank. Of course, this is a company that's either missed the rosiest of projections or straight up lowered estimates many times, yet it hasn't been a thing. 
PayPal is the thesis in banking, and it doesn't need no stinking earnings estimates beats. Of course, that's actually from the Treasurer's Sierra Madre, not the Magnificent Seven, but you get the point. Fourth, Roku. This one's the comic relief. Maybe it's the Charles Bronson character. The love for Roku is beyond reason. Remember, we're talking about thesis investing here, about cold stocks. And the thesis among young player, buyers is that there's nothing worth watching on traditional TV except maybe sports, and now not even that. No one under 30 can tolerate commercials. They'd rather just cut the cord. If you grew up with a DVR, the idea of sitting through 90 seconds of advertising is physically painful. Roku changes all that. They get to watch ad-free TV whenever they want. I didn't realize the power of this story until one of my daughters cut my own cord and replaced it with Roku. I put the cord back. She cut it again. Now that's dedication. Same dedication you see in the people who keep bidding up the stock. Fifth member of the Magnificent Seven, Square. Now here's an oddity. I just don't see what's so special about Square up here. But up here means nothing to these buyers. To them, Square stands for the empowerment of the little guy. Sure, it's similar to Etsy or Shopify, but those companies still need to produce real earnings or their stocks get punished. Square, on the other hand, has graduated beyond the need to make the numbers. It doesn't seem to matter what these guys do. The buyers are far more worshipful than the actual user of Square's point-of-sale product. I would have thought that the decline in retailers due to COVID would have somehow been a problem here. Uh Uh-uh. Instead, the stock of Square keeps roaring because it's a non-bank alternative to, say, owning Wells Fargo or Bank of America. Like PayPal, Square is considered one of the good guys. Although I don't know why you'd personify a point-of-sale system with some small business lending. Six, Tesla. All right, I won't pretend to know how high Tesla stock can go. A $400 billion valuation seems kind of crazy, but so did a $300 and so did a $200 billion. Here's what you might be missing, though. The buyers know that Elon Musk will get Tesla to grow into that market cap. I don't know how they know that. They just do, and they won't be dissuaded. I've always said Tesla's a cold stock, even after I joined the cult last year. That, that shareholder base isn't going anywhere, and neither am I. Is that circular reasoning? Absolutely. It's also giving you a monster gain in this one. Much to the chagrin of short sellers, Tesla's shareholders genuinely believe that no one else will ever build a better electric vehicle mousetrap. Their messianic zeal knows no bounds, not even the laws of physics. Finally, there's the leader of the Magnificent Seven, obviously the Yule Brenner as Zoom video. What can I say? This is their economy, the Zoom economy, and we just live in it. This company has insane growth, the likes of which I've never seen. Total meeting minutes on Zoom are 30 times what they were last year. 30! The company doesn't even have a, a, a low single-digit penetration of its market. It's only just begun to monetize all those users. Most important, every single time you hear that COVID cases are on the rise, these investors who don't care about valuation buy Zoom hand over fist. Zoom's taken the place of Xerox as a technical verb. It's the greatest story I've seen since the dawn of the personal computer. Now, nothing lasts forever, including the Marcus Love Affair with Magnificent Seven. But the bottom line, until we turn the corner in the pandemic, the earnings themselves are simply an abstraction for these thesis stocks. And any disappointment is simply one more reason to buy them. John in Massachusetts. John. Hey, Jim. Clock from outside of Boston and appreciate all the insight and content you provide each night. Oh, fantastic. Thank you very much. And, and, and always with a sense of humor. Love it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm calling about the, uh, the semiconductor space. I own three names, including NVIDIA for AI and Silicon Labs for Internet of Things. But what I'm asking you about is a leading equipment name with exposure to industrial demand and memory. The stock's had a big move in its reports earnings this week. What do you think here of LAM Research LRCF? All right, well, look, it is the best of breed. 
Uh, that does not necessarily mean that it's going to go up when it reports if we're in a rocky moment, but it is the best of breed, and you rarely go wrong buying the best of breed. Lamb is a stupendous company. Let's go to Fred in Florida, please. Fred. Jim, great to speak with you. I have so many great things to say about you. It takes the three hours, so let me move on. One quick statement, then my question. I've had 43 years in the real estate brokerage industry and going stronger than ever with a big team of agents in multiple states with the XP Realty model from the 1980s to the 1990s. Fantastic. I watched the big, big public companies' names and made my industry, like names like Merrill Lynch, Prudential, Sears, mm-hmm. and Banker across the country, which I was a part of, all gone now. But replaced with SoftBank, Compass Realty, Berkshire Hathaway, right. Business Reality. My question, two parts. Okay. Are the high-tech real estate and mortgage companies a good investment? There are mixed signals everywhere. My EXP Realty stock. All right, well, let's see them. Um, okay. Study, yeah. Study flow from 6 to 60, but my large investment at Rocket Mortgage, very opposite. Should I? Okay, Rocket Mortgage is a very difficult and complex situation with a very difficult ownership structure. We recommended under 19. It went up big, and we said, okay, that's enough. It's a little hard for me to understand. It's, no, it's a little hard for everybody to understand, maybe except for the people who put it together. Let's go to Levick in Florida. Levick. Hey, Jim. The stock that I'm wondering about is Lockheed Martin. They've got earnings tomorrow. I already have a small position in them. I'm wondering if it's worth holding on, buying more, or potentially selling well, out. Remember, even if the Democrats win, Democrats have a history of spending on military. People do not understand that. They are big defense spenders. Uh, we think that, uh, that Jim Takelet is just fantastic. He's the CEO. Uh, you know, It's one of those things that reports tomorrow morning. So what am I going to do? Like say buy it? No, there's no way you can buy it. But let's take a hard look at it tomorrow. Uh, it is a very good company. Uh, I'd rather get it toward a 3% yield rather than a 2.71. All right, there are many stocks where earnings matter. Of course, the vast majority. Then there are the magnificent seven where they tend not to mean anything. On Man Money Tonight, with election day just 15 days away, wondering what comes next in this market? I'm going off the charts to find out if this market can keep climbing. Then, trying to make sense of all these seemingly unstoppable growth stocks that have totally crazy valuations. I mean, I'm talking about price to sales. I'm telling, taking you down the list and tell you which moves could be sustainable. And I'm catching up on my homework and focusing on some names that you stumped me on. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This is a piece about as contrarian as you can get. As we head toward November and Election Day, after monster move higher from the bottom, what comes next? Can this market keep climbing or do we need to get more cautious given the latest spike in COVID cases and the action from today? If there's one thing I hate about election years is that you, you can't really talk stocks without talking politics. That, that's not just because I'd prefer to avoid the subject entirely. It's because we all have feelings about politics and nothing poisons your judgment like feelings, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. It's tough to make clear judgments about what any of this stuff means for the market unless you're totally indifferent to what happens in two weeks. That kind of bias is antithetical to being a good stock picker. 
So what do you do? What do you do? Well, that's why tonight we're doing what we always do when we want to take our personal feelings out of the equation. We're going off the charts because the charts, they have no feelings. They're like cards, right? They're quantitative, not qualitative. Specifically, we're going off the charts with the help of Larry Williams. I think he's that legendary technician who's been trading stocks, futures, and commodities since I was a child. He's written more than a dozen books. He's created some very important indicators. We use them all the time. Last week, I told you that Larry Williams and his buddy Tom DeMarc are the Batman and Superman of technical analysis, though, of course, I refuse to clarify which is which. Ever since the pandemic really got rolling, Williams has helped us navigate our way through some really troubled waters. Remember, he's the one who predicted that America would reopen for business by mid-May, back when most investors were still panicking about a depression in April. That was maybe the best contrarian call I've seen. Then over the summer, he introduced us to his 4th of July trade. He pointed out that if you buy the S&P 500 E-mini futures, E-mini futures uh, a few days before the holiday, then sell into strength right afterwards, historically, you've almost always made money. This has been an incredibly consistent pattern, and this year it played out exactly as Williams predicted. Now he spotted another one. This one's called the late October trade. And I've got to tell you, at the end of the day today, I don't know a soul who is going to believe what I'm going to, about to show you, but it's all empirical. Take a look at this table. If you buy the S&P 500 futures on a given day in October and then sell them into the first profitable opening with a $2,500 stop loss, this table shows how you would have done historically over the last 22 years. Today's the 19th, and Williams pointed out that we've arrived at something of a seasonal sweet spot. If you bought the S&P futures today, then sold into the first profitable opening, you would have had a winning trade 21 out of 22 times. If you did the same trade on the 20th, Hey, tomorrow, you're up 20 times and down just twice. So after this pasting today, this thesis holds that tomorrow's a good day to buy. On the 21st and 22nd, the odds get a little worse, but they're still pretty darn good. Look at this. Come on, we've always looked for these kinds of patterns. This is fantastic. These percentages, winning trades. You're talking about right here, okay? Now, what if you bought the S&P futures in this sweet spot, say today, then held them for a set number of days? I check out this next table. Williams has crunched the data, and over the past 22 years, the best way to play the October sweet spot is to buy right about now, then hold for eight days before selling, as long as you've got a $2,100 stop-loss order. Over this period, the eight-day late October trade made you money 20 times and only lost you money twice. Those are tremendous odds. More importantly, Williams notes that the gains on average were twice as large compared to what would have happened if you simply sold into the first up opening. Put it all together, Williams' work suggests that the next week or two could be a seasonally strong period for stocks. Didn't feel like that way today. Of course, in a little over two weeks, we run headfirst into the election. And that obviously has the potential to shake things up. When it comes to election day, Williams has another gigantic contrarian collier. Polling says Biden's probably going to win this thing, maybe in a landslide, Senate, House, whatever. But Williams thinks the stock market could be saying something very different. Take a look at this chart, which shows the action in the Dow Jones Industrial Average right now compared to the historical action from past election years when the party in power was defeated. Williams points out that in election years where incumbents lose, the market tends to peak in mid-July. Okay. Incumbents lose peak in mid-July, and then drift lower going in November. Makes sense. Incumbents have a big edge in American politics. When they lose, it's usually because the economy's not doing so hot. The thing is, that's not what the chart's doing here. Can the averages tell us anything about which party will win? Well, here we go. Okay, look at how the Dallas performed in years in election, in years, in election years where the Democrats win. Okay. 
since the New Deal, the Democrats have generally been the party of labor, while the Republicans are more aligned with business. That's not an endorsement of either side. It's just a fact about the respective coalitions. Sometimes those differences are more pronounced than others. But as you can see here, the Dow generally gets hammered from mid-September through election in years when the Democrats win the White House. Again, that's not the pattern here, is it? According to Williams, the action looks, lately looks a lot more like what happens in election years when the Republicans win. Check it out. Pretty interesting, huh? Not what you think. As Williams sees it, as long as the Dow holds up above its August lows, we're pretty far away from that, he thinks the charts are predicting a Trump victory. Like I said, this is a huge contrarian call, given the polling. Personally, I'm very hesitant to bet on the election after what happened last time, when everyone thought Hillary would win big, and then she ended up losing a very tight race. Even putting 2016 aside, this is the strangest election year I can remember. Uh, COVID has thrown everything into chaos. One last point from Williams. When incumbents win, the market tends to roar over the next year. When incumbents lose, that's more often a prelude to a choppy market at least for the next 12 months. Again, makes sense. Incumbents usually don't lose unless the economy stinks. This year, though, we have chaos. Some parts of the economy are on fire. Some parts of the economy are on life support. And the pandemic makes the future almost impossible to predict. But the bottom line, the charts, as interpreted by the great Larry Williams, suggest that you've got a terrific trade here, buying the Dow tomorrow or even Wednesday, then selling it roughly eight days later has been consistently a winner. On top of that, when it comes to the election, the polls might favor Biden. But as long as the Dow holds up above the August lows, Williams says the market favors Trump. Make that what you will. Stick with Craig. What do you do with all these seemingly unstoppable growth stocks that now have totally crazy valuations even after daylight today? I'm talking about the cloud names, the pandemic plays, including e-commerce, financial technology, stocks that suffer anywhere from 30 to 100 times sales, not earnings, sales. I mentioned Zoom at the top of the show, but let's put some meat on that stock's bones to start this. Before the pandemic, Zoom video was trading at around 25 times sales. Then it reported two spectacular quarters, and the stock shot into the stratosphere and now trades at more than 50 times sales. And look, I don't blame anyone for paying up. Zoom hasn't given you any reason to sell. And you'll look a genius for owning it because management keeps blowing away the, the estimates. Worrying about valuation would have kept you out of a magnificent move. Back in my old hedge fund, we used to call these high flowers, high flowers red hots. That's something that I just, it was a nickname, but it means you can make a lot of money if you time it right. But if you get it wrong, you're going to get singed, if not burnt. Look at Fastly, for instance. That's that white-hot content delivery network. Fastly pre-announced a slightly weaker-than-expected revenue number last week, then rolled out a small secondary offering in less than, in less than a week. The stock plunged from 136 to 83. Unlike the magnificent seven details at the top of the show, these companies are not immune to disappointment. When you look at the Kramer COVID-19 index, along with 50 other cloud software plays that didn't make the list and some new IPOs, there are exactly 15 stocks that trade at more than 30 times next year's sales estimates. Remember, I'm not talking about earnings. I'm talking about sales. And that means, by per se, no speed valuation, okay? If a valuation at all, let's run them down. First up, 
And these are all familiar names to you from this show. First up, we got CrowdStrike and Okta, two cloud-based cybersecurity plays. Something that's increasingly essential with so many people working remotely. It's easy to hack. Both of them delivered surprise profits the last time they reported. Now, you could argue it's insane to pay 30 times sales for companies that are only supposed to have 30% revenue growth next year. But what can I say? Okta and CrowdStrike have been huge winners for us. Of course, if they ever go out of style, yes, look out below. CrowdStrike's $145 stock at 20 times sales. It would be less than a $100 stock. Okta, a real fave of ours, trades at 242 At 20 times sales, you're looking at $164. A lot of downside here. 13th most expensive? Well, maybe you saw this when we had them on. From Wilmington, Wilmington, North Carolina. Encino, the banking software company backed by Salesforce that came public in July. Here's a stock that came public at a sky-high valuation. Since then, it's been stuck in a rut. Even though Encino reported a great quarter last month. The problem, a few weeks later, these guys did an early secondary, selling 6.7 million shares for insiders and early investors. Here at 80, Encino trades at more than 30 times sales. Even at 65, it'll be trading at 25 times sales. There's nothing I can do. These are all pricey. All right, IPOs for the class of 2020, Zoom Info, Amwell, and Lemonade. Now, we've talked about the last two before. Lemonade's trying to revolutionize the insurance industry. In July, the stock was trading at 74, and I told you it was too hot. Recommended waiting for a pullback to 60. Uh, that's where it's been for the past couple of months. You can buy a bit here, but why not wait for the stock to get to, uh, closer to 50 to buy even more, okay? Amwell's a telemedicine play like Teladoc. You know, that's our fave with that merger that they're doing with Livongo. Now, I was too cautious on this Amwell. I, I just, I kind of, I told you to wait for a pullback to the 20s. It never came. We missed a nice move here, but with Amwell in the high 30s, I'm once again saying wait for a lower level, but I also, again, understand that I didn't get this one right. As for Zoom Info Technologies, different from Zoom, the one we know for video. I wish they changed their name. One of them should change their name. They have a market intelligence platform for sales and marketing teams. The thing came public in June, quickly spiked above 50, then pulled back to 30 a month ago. It's now rebounded to nearly $45, another red-hot valuation here. Zoom Info is not a super fast score, but it's actually profitable. I need to do more homework before I can recommend it, although I understand the appeal. Remember, many super high-growth investors, money managers, are repelled by earnings. They fear profits mean the companies run out of opportunities to spend on growth. Thrift's a sin. Number nine, another old favorite of ours. Well, these are old. Wow. Cloudflare. It's a content delivery network CDM with a cybersecurity kicker. The stock exploded higher last week on the announcement of their new network as a service platform. As much as I love Cloudflare's story, its latest move does give me vertigo. This is a $58 stock. If it ever loses its mojo and pulls back to just 25 times earnings, it'd be a $44 stock. And don't be afraid to ring the register up here. Number eight, Coupa. Well, it's got a lot in common with number five, Bill.com. Coupa's cloud-based software helps businesses automate their expense management. They've got a proven ROI if you hire them. Build.com helps them automate financial operations. Now, these both have had magnificent runs because they make it easier for cash-strapped corporations to cut costs, but also for companies that are making a lot of money if they want to trim the fat. Bizarrely, Build.com is more expensive even though Coupa's got a much faster, Coupa's got a much faster growth rate and much better earnings. So, I mean, obviously, you would put this one here and that one there, if you really wanted to make any sense, a hedge fund manager would probably short this one and go long that one. Plus, if the cloud stocks go out of style, out of style, uh, build.com is very vulnerable, really. I want you to stick with Coupa. It's a terrific track record, been on many times, be- beaten estimates by 30 furlongs each time. That's a horse racing term for a lot of, lot of room. All right, now, this is another one. 
that's a paired trade. Next, we got Shopify at seven and Big Commerce, who's down here at four. They're both e-commerce facilitators. Shopify's long-term Kramer fave. Liked it below 100. Now it's above 1,000. Big Commerce just came public in August. It's basically a smaller copycat. Now, they've both been fabulous COVID winners because so many businesses need to go digital to survive. I would rather own Shopify, which is cheaper, even though it's got a much faster growth rate and it's already turning a profit. That said, we know shops prone to violent swoons. Last month, it pulled back from 1,150 to 870 in a matter of weeks. That's classic red-hot behavior, uh, although it rebounded to 1,069. You usually have to pull the trigger just when it looks really awful, which is what's happened almost every time of that stock. You, you don't really know where the bottom's going to be, so you have to buy slowly. Then there's the newly public JFrog. Think of them as a software developer, software developer. JFrog came public a month ago. I told you to wait for dip. We never really got one. One of my favorite tech analysts, a fellow by the name of Sterling Audi, A-U-T-Y, over at J.P. Morgan, recently initiated coverage of JFrog with an overweight rating and a $90 price target. It's now at 78 So you got my blessing to start buying this one right now. JFrog does sound like a character in a really bad you know, reality show. Which brings us to the top three most expensive white hots. Red white hots. In third, there's Datadog. Now, Datadog is an application performance monitoring software outfit. The stock's nearly tripled since the beginning of the year because it's a textbook COVID play. If you're going to embrace the cloud, you have to make sure those cloud-based programs actually work. Datadog reports in three weeks, but the bar's pretty high given that the stock trades at 44 times next year's sales. This is $112 stock. That could plunge to 76 and still have a red-hot valuation. Don't be misled by its canine name. This younger generation of investors loves companion animals. I, I, maybe they think a frog's a good companion animal. Not my fave. Second most expensive is Zoom Video. What can I say? As I described at the top of the show, this is the Zoom economy. People are using it. I mean, people are getting caught doing Zoom things they shouldn't even be thinking about. Sure, it trades at 52 times next year's sales, but it's also got a nearly 300% growth rate for 2020. How do you value a company that's taking over the world? Hmm, that's a tough one, right? Taking over the world times what? Sales? I don't know. I like Zoom here, although uh, you have to expect a brutal sell-off at some point next year when it looks like a vaccine is within reach. That's going to be the next point. If you got a huge gain here, well, you know what? Look, take some off, play the house's money. Finally, the hottest of the red hots. Snowflake, the cloud-based data warehousing play. This is melting the Snowflake. Snowflake came public with a bang last month, and while the stock hasn't done much, it still trades at 120 times this year's sales, or 64 times next year's numbers. Now, the company's got a great business with triple-digit revenue growth. I think it's going to crush the numbers, but I think the reason the stock's traded sideways since the IPO, well, this is the upper limit of what people are willing to pay. Snowflake's a $247 stock. This could be out. This could be Shopify, though. It, 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 meaning that it could plummet to 144, trading north of 35, and then come right back. But I doubt that that will happen because it, it's perhaps the most user-friendly cloud analytics and business intelligence tool out there. Go on the site, read through the examples, and you'll understand how this thing has become, out of nowhere, indispensable. The bottom line, some of these red-hot growth names are absolutely worth owing to this weakness, although if you're up huge, remember, it, it is a sin to let a gain turn into a loss. I don't blame you for wanting to hang on, even if it is, for dear life. And remember, some of these are cheaper than some of those, and that I do bless 
owning any of these for speculation, except for the ones that I said are too expensive versus their companion. Let's go to Quado, Quavo in Minnesota. Quavo. Thanks for taking my call again. I appreciate all that you do for the little guy. Trying oh, to thank you. Thank you. Yeah. My question is, I recently purchased calls on Chegg, ticker CHGG. Um, it's up over 150% year to date. Um, do you think it has any more room to run? Well, you know, it's one of those things, frankly, that it's a really weird situation because this is as kids keep going to school and then coming back because of COVID, it goes higher. So if you think that COVID's going to be able to be, be uh, triumphed over, then you do have to start selling some. I think you've got a little more, you have a little more to the upside, but please understand, understand that this is a stock that's going to go down when we start getting a vaccine, right? There are, because there's just too many people who will say, I should sell them. There are some seemingly unstoppable growth stocks that now have crazy evaluations. These are the richest stocks in the market, okay? Write them down. Take a picture of it. Screensaver. Whatever you do. These are the richest. Some of them are worth owning. But remember to practice discipline. Much more may have money at, including a contactless payment solution that you may have missed. I'll tell you if it could be worth considering here when I reveal the name. Then the market is hungry for industrials. But with earnings just around the corner, I'll tell you what your next move should be. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Every time you call to ask me about a stock that I'm not familiar with, I always promise to do some research and then circle back with a real answer rather than just cuff it. So let's catch up on our homework with a pair of very difficult uh, to understand IPOs that required us to do some digging. So on September 8th, a fellow by the name of Cliff in New York called in with a question about a company called Nano X Imaging. And I knew I had a hot one here. This is this. Then last Thursday, a Derek in Texas wanted to know about the same company. More controversy. Well, what's going on here? Why is it so controversial? We see NanoX is an Israeli medical technology play that came public in late August. The stock caught fire last month. Then a bunch of short sellers jumped in. Basically argued that the whole thing is a travesty of a mockery of a sham. So who is right, the bulls or the bears? Okay, NanoX is the X in the X-ray business. Pretty simple, right? They claim their X-ray machine can reduce the cost of imaging systems by order of magnitude. And they're aiming to become the new standard of care for diagnostic systems. Basically, though, we still do analog X-rays. The system hasn't changed that last much in the last century. I don't know if you've had one. They're all the same as they were like when our parents had them, or even older. NanoX says they've come up with a new digital X-ray source that would be radically cheaper. Now, that's interesting. Right. The idea here, if taking an X-ray was much less expensive, doctors would use him a lot more frequently and potentially catch all sorts of problems earlier. Their goal is to roll out 15,000 of these systems worldwide with a paper scan super, uh, subscription model that would still be cheaper than current X-ray machines. You know, what? when you hear that and you can see why people call and call in, because that's a very compelling story. Right. Emphasis, though, is on story. For now, NanoX is still a very early stage company similar to biotech, uh, a biotech stock that's yet to have any of its drugs approved. These guys submitted an application to the FDA in January, but then received a request for additional information in March. They only got back to the FDA on that last month. If they get clearance, NanoX says they can start deploying these systems in the first half of next year, not far from now. 
When NanoX came public in August, the stock price at 18, then opened at 20. Not an insane move right out of the gate. But last month, investors started discovering this thing, and the stock got real, real hot, real fast. Surging to 66 at its peak five, five weeks ago. But then the short sellers started gunning for the darn thing. Now the stock's back to 33. It's been cut in half. So near the peak, Andrew Left from Citron Research put out a piece calling Nano X, and I quote, a complete farce. Then Whitney Tilson, a uh, guy I know from when I started TheStreet.com, he's got his own newsletter, said he has no doubt the stock is worthless. A few days later, Carson Block from Muddy Waters Research weighed in, and he said, and I quote, we think it is a much bigger piece of garbage than Nikola will ever be, end quote. Holy cow. Ooh, there's some comparison for you. These are some real smart guys aligned against this one. So you can't ignore them. That was, that's what matters. So what happened? So the stock got hammered down to the low 20s. But unlike Nikola, NanoX seemed to have much better grasp of crisis management, which is why it's back in the 30s. Earlier this month, the company said they'd do a live demonstration of the technology at the Radiology Society of North America conference in late November or early December. So where do I come down? Now, on the one hand, the shorts make some compelling arguments. Citron Research points out these guys are trying to disrupt an industry dominated by gigantic conglomerates. And so, so far, they've spent only $7.5 million in research and development. Hmm. On the other hand, management seems confident they've got something real. Now, look, I got to tell you, sometimes when you hear these kinds of situations, what I do is I step back and I say, you know what? It's too hard for me. There's no sin in ever saying something's too hard for you. Nano X is wagering everything on this presentation a little over a month, and I have no idea what the outcome will be. Therefore, it's too binary for me. There are easier ways for me to make money for you, or at least help you. Next up, oh, this month, Shane in New York asked about Shift 4 payments, and the 4 is a, is a number 4, which came public back in June. This is a payment technology company, and right now you know the payment space is on fire. I talk about that the whole show, which is how this thing run from, uh, ran from 33 at the time of its IPO, 57 and change today. I think a shift for, frankly, is the poor man's Square PayPal. But given how much I like Square and PayPal, that's a compliment. Last year, the company had 30% revenue growth, but the pandemic has taken a real toll on its business. See, Shift 4 isn't just a payment technology company. It's a payment technology company with a ton of clients in the hospitality industry, restaurants, hotels, brick-and-mortar retail, pretty much, of course, ground zero for the economic fallout from COVID-19. So in the second quarter, Shift 4 took a huge hit, with sales down 21% year over year. However, the stock rallied on the news because the earnings were better than expected. Management gave a very bullish guidance for the second half of the year. Plus, the cadence of the quarter told you a lot. Shift 4 saw its payments volume shrink by 51% in April. By July, it was growing at 14%. That's called cadence, and it's real good, all right? About what you'd expect as the country came out of lockdown. Long story short, Shift 4 is a pretty straightforward recovery play, even as they just launched a touchless payment system for restaurants. Still, if you think the economy will keep reopening and the world will be back to normal sooner than we expect, I think the stock can keep roaring. But at a time when COVID cases are spiking all over the country and the world, I'm hesitant to recommend a recovery stock that spent the last month roaring higher. And if you want a payments play, well, as I said at the top of the show, I would stick with best of breed, PayPal or Square. They have money's back after the break. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. Come on, Rob. Of course, we're going to see the bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye
and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dang over the lightning round. Christmas. So we're Cindy in New York. Cindy. Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. Of course, Cindy. What's up? My question for you is Zawara or Ticket Zuo. Um, I hold it, and you think that's a hold? Do you think I, that's a I sell? think that you know, I know this space, and there are other companies that are doing something that is competitive against them, and that's why it's struggling so much, okay? It's got real competition, and that's an anathema to those who own a stock, especially a high growth stock. Let's go to Jeremy in Alaska. Jeremy! Booyah, Kramer. How's it going, man? It is going well. How about you, Jeremy? Pretty dang awesome so far. I got a question for you, Alviro Pharmaceuticals. Tell me, is it a good buy or not? No, it's a totally speculative stock. Pediatric liver, very niche market. If they hit it out of the park, even if they hit it out of the park, I still don't think you make that much money. But it's a spec, and I'm not going to – remember, I find room. If a 10-stock portfolio for a stock like that, it's fine. Dave in South Carolina. Dave. Jimmy Chill. Yeah, the chill man's Booyah here. From, Booyah from Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. I'm an out of I'm an out of work chef, but I've been trading full time since February, and I've been making money because of you. Good for you. I call oh, you thank the professor. You. Thank you. You're the professor Jimmy around here in these parts. Thanks. Thanks for taking my call. And also, I'm not a pesky Robin Hood trader. I'm just a regular Joe. No, that we make right. fun. They're fine. I actually praise them tonight. What's going on? <laughs> All right, B R K R, Bruker. Bruker. You taught me. You taught me. Look, here's the problem with Bruker. You're dealing with Dave. First of all, thank you for the kind words. Thermo Fisher and Danaher are both better companies. They have a higher dollar amount, but that doesn't mean that they're. You know, you've got to divide by ten if you want to look at these things that way. Those are the better place. Okay, those are both better. Let's go to Larry in Michigan. Larry. Booyah, Mr. Kramer wow. from uh, Lake St. Clair. How you doing? Lake St. Clair? We happen to have someone who actually knows where that is on the map. What's going on? St. Clair Shores, Michigan. Yes, uh, I, was, I wanted to know. First of all, I wanted to thank you for all that you do for the common investor. Oh, thank you. And I'm one of those guys, so I'm up 20% this year thanks to you. Hey, man, then we did good. We did good. What's yes. going on? So far, so good. How do you, what are your thoughts on Cloudera, C-L-D-R? No, no, Cloudera, it's cloudy, Cloudera. I would actually literally, I mean, this is what's so odd about it. I'd rather own uh, Snowflake than I would Cloudera because Cloudera does not have growth, and I, don't, I am not looking for value when it comes to that segment. Salesforce also is in that business, don't forget. Let's go to Tory in New Jersey. Tory. Tory. Oh, uh, yes. Yes, it's Jim. You got me. What's up? I'm calling about Teva stock, D-E-V-A. Teva is an inexpensive stock that I believe is going to stay uh, inexpensive because they don't have any growth, and I don't want stocks that have no growth. Let's go to Michael in Texas, please. Michael. Big booyah, Jim. Yo, what's going on? Hey, I'd like to give a shout out to my brother and uh, Matthew in Bronco, Texas. You've helped make us a lot of money, and we really appreciate you, Jim. So oh, that's terrific. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a young investor and always looking for long-term prospects. Uh, what do you think long-term about, you know, five to ten years about Salesforce CRM? I like Salesforce for, I like this since 2008. I like it now. Uh, as long as Mark's there, Benny up, then I think I'm going to like Salesforce. Uh, if he comes up with uh, I think he's doing fantastically. I think he's doing fantastically. Let's go to Carol in New York. Carol. Hey, Tim. Good to talk to you. Good to talk um, to you, Carol. Yeah, before I get to my stock, I've been wondering when we'll be able to buy the mask that won the contest. 
Oh, we're going to get the mess. Uh, the, we're going to get down to the top 10 uh, in November 9, and then we're going to have like a Shark Tank-like competition to find out what this is, what we're talking about, xprize.org slash mess, the competition we put together to be able to find a more human community mass. But go ahead, what's the stock? Great. Um, a couple of months back, you told us about Carly Garner's prediction that gold was going to take another leg up and then start a steady decline, um, which it's done on yes. two. So do you recommend selling a percentage of no. our barracks? No, 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 no. If anything, I want to use this decline to buy uh, well, I don't know which got that uh, Barrick. Was it Barrick? I just see the graphic. Um, I, I like Barrick very much. G O L D. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. This market's got a hunger for American industrial stocks. But unfortunately, there's a real shortage of manufacturers right now. The ones we have are either outrageously expensive, like they take Caterpillar, or fighting for their lives like U.S. Steel. Why? Well, because we haven't been a manufacturing economy in ages. It's cheaper to make things in China or Mexico where wages and pollution standards are lower. As a result, you don't see a lot of American industrials coming public. It's too bad because we now have an incredible craving for manufacturing stocks. So let's talk about Caterpillar. It's one of the few remaining industrials in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Cat CEO Jim Umbleby is determined to get his stock higher. And boy, has he ever done a great job of this. He's giving you a 13.5% gain in the midst of a nasty recession. Some of that's because of Cat's aggressive buyback. Umbleby's retired more than 10% of the float. But a lot of it comes down to pure multiple expansion. There just aren't many high-quality manufacturing stocks. So money managers are willing to pay up for something like Caterpillar, which is why this now trades at 32 times earnings Price earnings multiple, really? Even though the company's more levered to faltering oil prices than to resurgent China. Umblebee's got it going. Or let's take deer. All right, they make the best farm equipment in the world, although it's also some of the most expensive farm equipment in the world, especially after they jam all the tariffs on it all over in countries like Europe. Thanks to a combination of election year farm subsidies and a robust agricultural complex, including, by the way, China demand, Deere's given you an outstanding 37% gain this year. But with the stock trading at 31 times earnings, you might think this was a cloud computing play. So these are both trading around the same level of priced earnings, okay? Now, there's an opportunity here if you really believe the global economy's on the mend. While U.S. Steel's been crushed, its competitor, Nucor, has been hanging in there, 3% yield. At $49, the stock could potentially be a bargain, selling at 21 times earnings, but down 13% for the year. Now, there's been some movement up in steel for the booming auto market, but not in any others. Still, we're going to find out more when Nucor reports on Thursday. Given that the company gives us intra-quarter updates, I don't expect much of a surprise, but I will tell you, it's the quality name in the group. How about 3M? Oh, this one's intriguing. 3.5% yield. I like that. $170 price tag. like that. It's down almost 4% for the year. As I see it, 3M is a textbook Trump play. The stock has been held back by worries about pollution litigation. And I'm guessing it plays out better on a second term from Trump. He's the pro-business candidate, not the pro-environmental candidate. 3M's got lots of China exposure, though, and they'll probably do just fine under Biden, too. 20 times earnings. I think that's pretty good for a high-quality company like 3M. Same goes for Emerson Electric, $70 stock, down 8% for the year, tons of China exposure. Emerson makes a lot of nuts and bolts. At 21 times earnings, it makes sense. Ingersoll Rand stock is cheaper on a price to earnings uh, share, per share basis uh, and in many ways better. Um, well, the problem is it's just at this very moment very expensive uh, versus what I think you can do. 
in many ways, this is the one that I think is best uh, in terms of uh, risk reward. Finally, there's Illinois Toolworks, probably the worst on risk reward, but it seems to just not want to quit. The thing's been relentless. It's up 13% for the year. Stock now sells for 35 times earnings. 35! This is, it makes auto parts, you know, regular stuff. It's like metal bend. Some of that might be, might argue that's a run too much. But in a momentum-driven market, it's the real favorite. Who knows? Maybe the earnings estimates could tend to be too low. Now, there are some others steeped in auto and aerospace, both of which are improving. But I think what distinguishes this group is a lack of new supply. We just don't make new manufacturers, and the old ones have plenty of capital to buy back stock. By the way, the chemical companies is represented by Dow. The papers is represented by West Rock International Paper. They look pretty good, too. International Paper's got a nice yield. However, earnings are coming. And if you want industrial exposure, maybe what you want to do is you want to wait on the ones that are up a lot, though it's still safe to buy the ones that are flat to down. The market is hungry for these things. I don't want you to get carried away. This group has everything going for it other than real robust earnings growth, which is another way of saying the moves only got so much staying power. Now, I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.